Welcome to Chiropractic Science, where you get to hear interviews with leading chiropractic researchers from around the world. Hear about chiropractic research from the authors in plain English, not through the media, nor a middleman. My name is Dr. Dean Smith, and I am the host of Chiropractic Science. I'm a clinical professor in the Department of Kinesiology and Health at Miami University, and I'm also a chiropractor in Eaton, Ohio. My research interests relate to understanding how chiropractic affects motor control and human performance. And today we're going to be talking about some issues dealing with motor control and imaging in particular. Today I have the privilege of interviewing Dr. Ken Weber. But before we get to the interview, I wanted to thank all of you who have subscribed to Chiropractic Science, and I'm especially appreciative to all of you who have left reviews on iTunes. iTunes helps others find out about chiropractic science. So if you like the show, please take a second and write a review. It will support chiropractors everywhere. And recently got a review from Dr. Katie Benson, and she says, a great resource. I always look forward to new episodes. This podcast breaks down research in an interesting and easily digestible form. It's my favorite way to stay up to date on chiropractic research. Thanks, Dr. Smith. Well, thank you, Dr. Katie Benson, for that review, and thank you for listening to the podcast. All right, on to the podcast. Well, let's get on to the interview with Dr. Ken Weber. Dr. Ken Weber is an instructor in the Department of Anesthesiology, Perioperative, and Pain Medicine at Stanford University. He obtained his Doctor of Chiropractic from Palmer College of Chiropractic, Florida in 2009, and then completed a PhD in neuroscience at Northwestern University in 2016, specializing in movement and rehabilitation science. Ken's research intersects clinical pain research and advanced imaging techniques with an emphasis on brain, spinal cord, and musculoskeletal imaging. His research aims to better understand the neural and musculoskeletal changes underlying clinical pain conditions the mechanisms of treatments, and predictors for recovery. Ken is currently supported by a K-23 Mentored Patient-Oriented Research Career Development Award from the National Institute of Neurological Disorders and Stroke of the National Institutes of Health. His previous funding has included the National Center for Complementary and Integrative Health, the National Institute on Drug Abuse, and the NCMIC Foundation, Inc., I'd also like to point out that Ken was recently selected to be part of the Carl Fellows Program, the Chiropractic Academy for Research Leadership Program. Congrats, Ken, and thanks so much for coming on the Chiropractic Science Podcast. Thank you, Dean. It's a great opportunity to be here. Yeah, so uh, first, uh, why don't you tell us how you got into chiropractic? Okay. So I really enjoyed science and math, and from a young age, I envisioned myself working in a field related to science, biology, or medicine. My family was a strong, uh, were strong proponents of chiropractic. I grew up in a blue-collar family in a small farming town in the Midwest. Lots of working outdoors, gardening, manual labor. My grandparents on both sides of my family utilized chiropractic care for musculoskeletal issues. Um, as well as my parents. Um, my father suffers from chronic low back pain, uh, which he manages with chiropractic. I grew up uh, going with him and my mother to see the chiropractor. Chiropractic was just a part of my life. Uh, our family chiropractor 
ran an office from her house. It was a small but busy walk-in practice with a simple setup. Uh, she ran the whole show from billings to treatments. Uh, the simplicity of it was very appealing. And I felt that chiropractic could provide a very nice work-life balance. Next, my older sister attended Palmer College of Chiropractic in Iowa. Her and my brother-in-law are both chiropractors practicing in, in Round Rock, Texas. Uh, she was an important role model of mine. I visited her several times in Davenport when I was in college. She was very passionate about chiropractic and drew me into the profession. I also had a desire to pursue something different than the conventional medical career path. So my experience with chiropractic, my sister, and desire to be different uh, led me into the profession. And I decided early in my undergraduate career that I wanted to become a chiropractor. Uh, my path at that time diverged somewhat from my sister's. I enrolled in Palmer, Florida instead of Davenport. I really wanted to get out of the Midwest for a bit. Uh, Florida allowed me to get away from the winter you know, and soak up some sunshine. That's great. Uh, and you mentioned that uh, you wanted a different path. Yeah, all of us chiropractors, I guess, are a little bit different that way, mm -hmm. just, just by our nature. So how, how did you get into research from, uh, from chiropractic school? Yeah, so it's been a long path. Um, but as I mentioned earlier, you know, science and math really interested me and came natural. Uh, they didn't really seem like work. I went to a local state university, uh, Saginaw Valley State University in Saginaw, Michigan, for my undergrad, uh, where I studied biology and chemistry. Uh, the university had a strong affiliation with uh, the Dow Chemical Company, uh, which is headquartered in Midland, Michigan, um, only a half-hour drive from Saginaw. Uh, after my first semester in college, I was able to get a position as a lab technician in emulsion polymer research, uh, where I worked in an analytical lab for paper coatings, carpet backing, and paint. Uh, while I was mainly supporting the scientists in research um, versus you know, actually advancing science, it was my first experience working a research team, and I loved the environment and the work, and I worked at Dow for the remainder of my undergraduate career. Um, however, when I went into chiropractic school, um, my main goal was to focus on my clinical training and to come out and start my own practice. Um, that was my plan. However, shortly into the program, um, I saw you know, the many gaps in our clinical knowledge, you know, whether that's uh, regarding the theory behind certain chiropractic techniques or just our understanding of the causes of neck and back pain and the best way to manage a specific patient. Um, overall, I guess I had a large amount of skepticism, possibly too much, and I sort of became fascinated and or frustrated by this lack of knowledge. So I started to seek out more evidence-based approaches to spine care, um, which in my opinion were not often the focus of what we were being taught at the time. Um, so I read uh, Dr. Craig Levinson's Rehabilitation of the Spine, Dr. Craig Morris's Low Back Syndromes, Dr. Donald Murphy's Cervical Spine Dis uh, Syndromes, um, which were not required readings for my classes. Um, I also had Dr. David Seaman as an instructor, and he introduced us to this uh, the, the Vertebral Subluxation Complex and Gatterman's book by the same name. And I guess I just found out that there, there was really just so much to be learned and uh, my passion and motivation kind of changed um, 
to towards more towards the research and um, thinking of pursuing a PhD following chiropractic college. Um, at that time, I started to reach out to all of the chiropractor you know, DC PhDs that I could find uh, to get their advice on how to best pursue a research career. This included doctors uh, Partep Kulsa, uh, Jeffrey Bove, Michael Schneider. Uh, a major piece of advice I kept hearing was that I needed to get more research experience uh, to be competitive for a PhD program. So I started to seek out as many research opportunities as I could during my remaining time at Palmer. I began working with Dr. Sean Herr, my uh, past anatomy instructor on a chiropractic education research project uh, that aimed to assess the research culture and research activities of chiropractic students at Palmer. Uh, this was eventually published in the Journal of Chiropractic Education. I also started working with Dr. Don Dishman on a project using two neurophysiological techniques, H-reflexes and F-waves, to study sensory motor inhibition following lumbar spinal, uh, lumbar spinal, spinal manipulation in healthy subjects. Uh, this project was later published in the Journal of Experimental Neuroscience. Then during uh, my chiropractic preceptorship, I moved to Chicago and started to work part-time as a research assistant under Dr. James Stanier, uh, who was the director of the Neuroplasticity Lab at the Rehabilitation Institute of Chicago, now the Shirley Ryan Ability Lab. Um, Dr. Stanier is a DC PhD. He graduated from Sherman College in 1981. He practiced in New Zealand for 20 plus years and uh, was also quite active in the profession. Uh, this included being past president of the New Zealand Chiropractors Association and being involved in the establishment of the New Zealand Chiropractic College and acting as the college's first principal. You know, if that wasn't enough, uh, Jim then went on uh, later to complete a PhD in neurophysiology at the University of Auckland, focusing on stroke rehabilitation and motor system plasticity. And then he became the director of the Neuroplasticity Lab at the Rehab Institute of Chicago, uh, where he worked on uh, different neuromodulation techniques, such as a transcranial magnetic stimulation, transcranial direct current stimulation, um, as adjuvants uh, for stroke rehabilitation. Um, Jim is now currently uh, an associate professor at the University of Auckland. So I worked for Jim um, for almost a year part-time uh, while I practiced part-time in private practice. Uh, this experience really got me interested in a neuroscience research career, and I began applying to neuroscience PhD programs. In 2010, I started my PhD in neuroscience at Northwestern University, uh, working under the mentorship of Dr. Todd Parrish. Todd is an MR physicist and is the director of neuroimaging uh, for Northwestern Center for Translational Imaging. My PhD research focused on spinal cord uh, neuroimaging in humans with MRI, including uh, spinal cord functional MRI. In 2016, I started a postdoctoral research fellowship in clinical pain research at Stanford University under Dr. Sean Mackey. Uh, Dr. Mackey is an anesthesiologist and pain medicine specialist with a PhD in electrical engineering. And he pioneered some of the early work using advanced brain imaging to better understand pain. So here at Stanford, I've been transitioning my work in spinal cord imaging uh, into clinical pain research. And I'm finally uh, circling back uh, to neck and back pain research. 
In 2018, I was promoted to instructor, and I currently have the pleasure of collaborating on a bunch of exciting projects with a large multidisciplinary group of friends uh, and researchers across the globe. Oh, excellent. Uh, it's, uh, it's a lot of great background, and I'm definitely interested in hearing more about this collaboration, and you, you mentioned about circling back. Uh, so... I'd like to circle back to uh, to your practice. Do you do you currently practice these days? Yeah. So while I've, I've maintained my license, uh, I do not currently have a clinical role. Um, maybe that will change. Um, however, you know, I sort of bet everything on this research career, and there's only so much time in a week. So any time that I devote uh, to clinical practice will take away, if, you know, from my research output. And as you know, the you know the skill set is is quite different. Uh, initially, I planned to maintain at least a foot in the clinic while I pursued my research training. However, uh, I have not been successful at that. Um, um, I was not able to, you know, really to find a practice uh, for part-time work in the Chicago area, uh, which was convenient and suited my style of practice. You know, but then again, I, you know, I may not have looked hard enough. I really, the research was driving me. Um, I did study with several physical therapists during my PhD um, who were able to work flex shifts in the hospital on a part-time basis as they had time during their PhD. Uh, unfortunately, this option was not available to chiropractors. I feel as the profession, though, becomes more uh, integrated within the hospital settings, uh, it'll only make it easier for chiropractors um, working towards their PhD uh, to maintain a clinical role. Yeah, that's cool. And I, I, I really hope to see more of that kind of thing happening uh, within our profession. I, I think uh, it's a natural consequence um, and will happen more and more as we progress. So, Ken, why did you choose neuroscience? So, when I started looking at PhD programs, I was interested mainly in getting research experience. And I, th I think I could have been happy uh, in many different fields. I chose neuroscience because I thought it encompasses uh, much of what back and neck pain are, you know, and I could try to really get at the cause of these conditions. Uh, for example, uh, I received training in pain neurophysiology, sensory motor integration, motor control, uh, neurophysiological techniques, and statistics. Uh, another nice thing was that Northwestern's program um, was also uh, affiliated with the Rehabilitation Institute of Chicago, as well as uh, the Strong uh, Physical Therapy and Human Movement Sciences program at Northwestern. Um, so being in a neuroscience program, I was still able to specialize in movement and rehabilitation sciences. Um, I also just personally enjoy the technical aspects of neuroscience, um, you know, working to quantify neural responses and understand the nervous system and its role in back and neck pain. Uh, uh, are pretty fun. Absolutely. And you're speaking my language there with sensory motor integration and motor control. <laughs> Love it. So I also understand that you're involved in Parker's clinical neuroscience master's program. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, since last summer, uh, I've been involved in the emerging themes in clinical neuroscience course, uh, which is part of Parker's online uh, clinical neuroscience master's program. I was asked by my past mentor, Dr. Don Dishman, uh, the program director, to help out. The course I teach covers uh, neuroimaging and contemporary mechanisms of spinal manipulation and pain quantification, 
uh, as well as pain neuroscience education. And we touch a little bit on uh, big data and machine learning, sort of, you know, maybe where the field and tools will be using, you know, 10 years from now. Uh, the fun part is, you know, that the students uh, are required to read about three publications a week on these topics, uh, which gets the students used to reading uh, and extracting information from the scientific literature, you know, which is a, a skill that takes, takes a lot of practice. And uh, for one of the articles each week, I, I make the, the students uh, submit a written critique, um, kind of like they were uh, reviewing that article um, for a journal, and they need to determine whether it should be accepted or rejected for publication. And I think this uh, critical appraisal part of the course is, is the most important component and skill they learn. And for me, it's fun to see how much they improve over the course, uh, and it's great to get their input on on. Uh, what they how what they think about these articles and uh, and the findings and interpretation. It's just, it's been a really great experience. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, I think I I learned a new word, Ken. Chronification. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to use that now. Cool. Yeah, it might not be it might not be in the dictionary. I'm not sure. <laughs> no, but I like it anyway. So thanks for that. Ken, you've been published in top journals such as Spine, Archives of Physical Medicine and Rehab, Arthritis and Rheumatology, Journal of Orthopedic and Sports PT, Physical Therapy, and many others. Um, we're going to try to get through some of your expertise today. And uh, to do so, I, I think if we could break down some of your research into various topics, that would be helpful. So how about we start with um, how we can understand pain and sensory motor function using advanced MRI techniques and measures. So can you tell us, first of all, what a typical MRI is good for? So MRI, uh, magnetic resonance imaging, which I'm sure most of the listeners are familiar with, uses strong magnetic fields and radio frequency pulses uh, to generate am images uh, from hydrogen atoms. Uh, you use a radio frequency pulse to excite the atoms, uh, which generates the MR signal. You spatially encode this signal, uh, and then you collect that signal uh, to create an image. The main advantages of MRI is that you can create images of different orientations and size. You know, it's not just a single 2D images, but you can also generate these three-dimensional images. Um, and you can create images with uh, different contrasts uh, without using any ionizing radiation. Um, that part of not using any ionizing radiation is really great for clinical neuroscience in that we can repeat imaging in humans uh, without worrying about any harm, harm to the individual. Um, so since starting my PhD, I've probably uh, received an MRI probably every other week uh, for my own research, um, which adds up, you know, to a couple hundred times where I've been in the scanner. Uh, but those repeated measures, uh, it doesn't, there's no harm necessarily that's going to come from that. Huh. Now, that's interesting, getting all of those scans. I, I mean, I just find it tough to be laying in the scanner. I've only had a couple myself, <laughs> but... Wow. Just curious, have you noted any significant changes or interesting things after you've received all these MRIs over the years, Ken? Yeah, well, I haven't gone back and, you know, looked at, at the images over time and like what we've collected. Usually it's that we're just piloting a sequence for a study and we're not actually collecting that data as part of an ongoing study. Um, usually I just look at it and then kind of just file it away. Uh, but it'd be interesting to do, um, to, to do is, you know, go back and look through it all. 
I do know that I have a, a disc herniation at C5, C6, uh, which uh, continues to persist, but fortunately, I, you know, I don't have any symptoms. Well, I'm happy to hear that. <laughs> what, so what's the difference then between T1 and T2 weighted images? I hear these, you know, all the time. Uh, and periodically I have to look it up, uh, just cause I forget what they are. So maybe you can tell us about that. Yeah, I think it takes a while to get your, your head wrapped around all these different terms. Um, but, you know, I mentioned that MRI provides uh, images with different contrasts. And uh, contrast is just the difference in intensity in an image. So, for an example, on a typical T2-weighted image, uh, the CSF is bright, um, while the bone is dark. Uh, so a T2-weighted image um, provides high contrast between the CSF and the bone. Uh, the reason for the different contrast is that the bone and CSF have different magnetic properties, uh, which differentially influence the signals received from those tissues and the resulting contrast in the image. So depending on how you time the excitation of the tissue and the collection of the MR signal, uh, you can create images with different contrasts. Uh, so T1 and T2 uh, refer to the time that it takes for the MR signal to recover in the longitudinal direction, that's, that's T1, um, or decay in the transverse plane, that's T2. Um, so T1-weighted and T2-weighted images are designed to create images with maximum contrast based on the T1 or T2 of the tissues of interest. Um, MRI's main uh, benefit, you know, clinically is that it provides excellent soft tissue contrast um, and can provide contrast, you know, between bone and muscle, um, as well as CSF, gray matter, and white matter um, without the need of any sort of endogenous contrast agents. Um, this is particularly beneficial when we try to visualize a spinal anatomy, uh, where MRI can provide uh, information on the disc and bone pathology um, in relationship to uh, spinal nerve roots and the spinal cord itself. Um, and, you know, when all this gets combined, uh, the imaging with other pieces of evidence, such as the history, exam findings, and other testing, um, it can help guide in the clinical decision-making uh, for a patient. Uh, in addition um, to tissues having different magnetic properties, uh, physiological processes can also affect the MR signal. Um, and you can tune your sequence uh, to capture these signals, uh, these differences in the signal, and you can create an image uh, with a contrast based on that uh, physiological process. Hmm. Yeah, I want to dive a little bit deeper into this and talk about advanced MRI, if you could, and, and what your research is, is using this advanced MRI for. Yeah, so I, I would summarize uh, my research as having uh, three aims. Uh, the first is to develop uh, imaging modalities and techniques that are more sensitive and specific to the pathology, um, providing more diagnostic, prognostic, and predictive information. Um, the second, you know, is to provide more quantitative information to the clinician. Um, so you could imagine in the future, uh, a radiologist may be spending less time um, focusing on identifying the area of pathology, but maybe they, they act more like uh, an actuary where they now have this abundance of metrics that we extracted from the series of images, and then they can use this quantitative information to uh, base their clinical decision-making. 
Uh, you know, this relies on using machine learning and statistical techniques uh, to automate the extraction of these metrics from the images. And then third, uh, my third aim is uh, really is to use these measures to better understand uh, the nervous system and how it functions, the neurophysiology of pain, how treatments work, and why certain treatments work for some patients but not for others. Um, hopefully, you know, this could be used, information could be used to treatment stratify patients, you know, to the best treatment um, and improve current treatments and then uh, maybe even develop new, new treatment approaches. Yeah, for sure. I mean, stratifying people and, and subclassifying or classifying folks into different categories seems to be all the rage these days. And, you know, there, there's some good research on some of that subclassification, but a whole lot needs to be done for it. And I think clinicians out there really could benefit from these sorts of techniques to be able to identify people quicker or be able to categorize, you know, who might respond to our, our care uh, most appropriately. Uh, that's great. So can you talk about advanced MRI techniques that you use in your research and, and what, what they're good for? Like, for example, uh, you know, are we able to look at white matter tracks uh, and, and how might this be useful for us? Yeah, so my research focuses largely on advanced neuroimaging techniques for the brain and spinal cord. I dabble uh, in some musculoskeletal spine imaging as well. There are three main techniques uh, that I use in my research. Uh, these are uh, volumetric structural imaging, functional MRI, and diffusion MRI. Um, oh, so we'll start with uh, volumetric structural imaging. Um, so for this, we typically acquire a full brain uh, T1-weighted uh, 3D image of really high, pretty high resolution. So we're looking at like one millimeter cube resolution or less. And these images can provide excellent uh, white matter to gray matter contrast. So you can see the borders between these. And then using some advanced uh, image analysis tools, we can actually extract uh, gray matter measures from these images. And this includes measures of cortical thickness and gray matter density, as well as uh, the volumes of subcortical uh, and brainstem nuclei. Um, so for example, we can see how cortical and subcortical gray matter uh, differs between controls and chronic pain conditions or changes with the course of treatment. Hmm. Yeah, that's, that's pretty cool. So how, how might, how long might it take to see the effect of an intervention uh, using this type of imaging? Is it, can we see it right away or does it take weeks or months? Yeah. So for changes in, in gray matter, you know, the, the time scale is usually months uh, there are motor learning studies that have showed changes in a, in a shorter time scale of one to two weeks of learning a new motor task. Um, you know, the, the field's still new and developing, and there's only really a handful of longitudinal studies um, that are investigating pre- and post-treatment changes um, in the brain for musculoskeletal conditions. Uh, there is a 2018 uh, pain medicine study which identified changes in gray matter changes uh, at around six months uh, post-total uh, knee replacement. Hmm. Fascinating. Yeah, and in, in the field that I teach in, uh, exercise, it seems that there's you know significant effect over time, of course, uh, dealing with uh, an increase in gray matter with activity. So 
That's interesting. I, I look forward to some longitudinal studies uh, to come out uh, within our field, perhaps to to look at you know what if any changes might occur. Pretty cool. Uh, so I've read several studies that use functional MRI and show interesting pictures of brain activation. How how does functional MRI work? Functional MRI is a technique that provides information on neural activity um, and can be used to see regions of brain activation during, uh, let's say, a motor task or sensory stimulation, for example. Um, So you can use functional MRI to look at how information is processed or shared um, um, between brain regions um, at more of a a network level also. So looking at uh, activation during a task or trying to get information about uh, processing between brain regions. Um, so, for example, um, we can see how maybe brain regions are talking to each other. As hmm. mentioned earlier, uh, with MRI, it may be possible. Um, it's maybe possible to create an image uh, that's sensitive to a physiological process. You know, if that physiological process can alter uh, the magnetic signal. Um, functional MRI uh, relies on the blood oxygenation level dependent contrast or bold signal. Um, oxygenated hemoglobin and deoxygenated hemoglobin have different magnetic properties um, which alter the magnetic signal. Um, so with neural activity, um, your vascular system will actually send more oxygenated blood to the active brain regions. Uh, to support uh, that region's metabolism. So the increase in a local oxygenated hemoglobin concentration um, will lead to an increase in the MR signal in that region and a brighter pixel uh, in the MR image. Uh, in functional MRI, uh, we collect you know, multiple brain images over a course of an experiment, uh, which lets us see how these brain oxygen levels change over time. And then these images can be analyzed uh, and to map uh, neural activity across the brain. Hmm. Yeah, I'm, I'm thinking about uh, the chiropractic literature, and I, I can think of one study that I believe used uh, fMRI in, in men. Uh, it was a small-scale study, and um, they, they try to show pre-post change using FM, fMRI. I haven't seen any repeats or replications of that. Uh, and that was, oh, geez, probably five or six years ago. I believe they use Activator as the uh, adjusting technique for that. But uh, hmm. so also curious, how does fMRI compare to something like EEG? It's EEG, so that's uh, electroencephalography. You know, it's another uh, neuroimaging uh, technique that can measure neural activity. Uh, With EEG, um, you're picking up voltage changes um, from the brain's cortex uh, due to neural activity. Uh, One major difference is that uh, with fMRI, we can get a higher spatial resolution than EEG, and we can look deeper into the brain, so at deeper brain structures like brainstem and um, areas that are kind of farther away from the cortex. Um, One of the disadvantages of fMRI um, is that because it's uh, based on blood flow changes, uh, the timescale is much slower slower than EEG. Um, So with fMRI, you're kind of looking at activity in the second to half second range, um, where with uh, fMRI, um, uh, yeah, 
Sorry about that. With fMRI, you're looking at the activity within the second to half a second range, uh, which EEG is much faster. Um, fMRI is also, you know, a more expensive than EEG, which is also something to consider when you are uh, designing your experiment. Hmm. Yeah, I know. I, I went to uh, a place in Florida for a conference, and they used fMRI, and it seemed like that scanner was going pretty much 24 hours a day. Uh, just, I couldn't believe it. Uh, that was, geez, that was f- like 20 years ago, and they were just cranking out the studies. Uh, which actually brings me to my next point. Can can these things be used clinically, or and if so, how are they used clinically? Yeah, so the main use of functional MRI uh, clinically is in uh, preoperative planning. So, for example, if you're going to undergo brain surgery, uh, you may undergo a functional MRI session um, that could be used to identify the brain regions, let's say, that are responsible for speech. Um, so then uh, the surgeon can use this information to kind of stay clear of those areas uh, during the surgery uh, to prevent speech deficits. Gotcha. Well, how about um, the the next topic uh, I think you were going to talk about was diffusion MRI. Maybe you can tell us a bit about that one. Yeah, so diffusion MRI, um, we can use this to look at white matter in the brain. Diffusion is the random movement of molecules. Um, if you drop you know, some dye into a glass of water, eventually that dye will diffuse throughout the water. Uh, diffusion of water um, is also occurring in the brain and your tissues. Um, however, the cellular structures uh, in the brain can limit the direction of diffusion. So for example, in the gray matter uh, where the cell bodies are, which are round-like, um, the diffusion is, you know, is primarily isotropic, which is uh, diffusing equally in all directions. Um, but in the white matter, where you have uh, the axons that go between cells, um, the, these axons make the water diffusion uh, more limited to the, the axis of that axon, uh, so that single direction. Um, so in diffusion MRI, we can collect a series of images that are sensitive or have contrast to the different directions of diffusion. And uh, the series of images uh, can be mathematically combined to provide information on the magnitude and direction of diffusion in white matter tracks um, and provide information on the quality of white matter tracks, such as myelination, uh, the size of the white matter tracks, and the strength of structural connections between brain regions. Hmm. Now we're starting to get more into my language here, motor things. Uh, so how, how can we use this clinically or, or do we use it clinically yet? Yeah. So because uh, diffusion weighted imaging is so sensitive to, to water movement, um, areas of edema and cell swelling uh, can be identified quite well with diffusion imaging. Uh, so the main clinical use, um, commonly used, is if a stroke is suspected, uh, diffusion imaging is, is usually included. Um, it's very sensitive to uh, ischemic changes uh, within minutes of a stroke. Hmm. Yeah, this is interesting. So are there any contrast agents needed for, for any of these MRI uh, techniques that we've just talked about? Yeah, so, so contrast agents, they have a role in MRI. Um, but all of the imaging sequences that I discussed um, and uh, do not have to use any contrast. So it's, it's, it's pretty amazing that you're able to um, get uh, this much information about the anatomy 
and even physiology without having to um, use any contrast agents. And I think that's pretty amazing. It's why I find MRI to be so fascinating. Um, if any physiological or physical process could affect the magnetization, um, you can maybe may be able to create an image that's sensitive to that. Hmm. Um, yeah. So I guess just together, you can take you know these three techniques combined, um, kind of provide information on the gray matter, uh, the white matter connections between these brain regions, and just the overall functional network and, and neural processing. Um, Hopefully that's kind of clear, but you can kind of see how all of these different measures can come together and kind of complement each other and really give us a, a pretty uh, impressive view of, of the nervous system. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, my, my brain, the, the practitioner in me says, well, uh, I haven't seen other practitioners order these things, uh, maybe just because I'm not dealing with stroke patients for the most part. And I'm not in the hospital. So is it common for, I mean, would a chiropractor order these things? Or are they primarily just for research now? Or, you know, should we be looking forward to these things in the future, I guess? <laughs> yeah, a great question. So the development of these advanced brain imaging techniques, you know, has somewhat outpaced uh, the clinical research, um, especially you know, musculoskeletal care. Um, structural and diffusion imaging have important roles in diagnosing brain pathology, and then functional MRI has its role in pre-surgical planning. Um, but for back and neck pain and other pain conditions, you know, these tools are, are primarily research tools right now, um, but they, they have had an impact on clinical practice. Um, you know, while we're still figuring out the clinical translation for these tools, um, these neuroimaging tools have increased, you know, our understanding of pain processing, uh, and this knowledge, you know, has affected clinical practice. You know, it's shown us uh, that uh, processing of nociceptive and pain information in the brain is quite complicated. Uh, for example, the pain experience, you know, is, is not encoded by any single brain region, uh, but it's distributed across the brain. And somehow the, across this network of brain regions, uh, there's the different dimensions of pain, the pain experience uh, kind of come together and create the individual's uh, own perception of pain. And I think just showing this complexity of, of pain processing and the pain experience um, kind of has had a major impact, you know, with how we communicate with patients. And, you know, we try to kind of, you know, reduce through, through education, reduce the focus on the pain itself, um, get patients not to equate pain with injury um, and to be more engaged in activity. And that kind of, those kind of recommendations that I think the neuroimaging uh, literature kind of has uh, supported those efforts. Yeah, definitely. Uh, those, and those have translated, I think, pretty well into, into practice. At least the many of the practitioners that I speak with uh, seem to be getting that message I think loud and clear. So this is great. And hopefully we'll just see more and more of this translation come from these advanced studies. So Ken, thanks for going through and describing these different types of MRI techniques. Much of your research has been in spinal cord fMRI. So what's different and unique about the spinal cord? Yeah, so my work has largely focused on optimizing techniques uh, to improve our ability to um, use these same measures I discussed for the brain, um, but for the spinal cord. 
Uh, specifically, my work for my PhD focused on uh, measuring sensory motor function with uh, spinal cord functional MRI. Uh, there are some, I guess, unique challenges uh, that make uh, imaging uh, the spinal cord quite difficult. You know, first, it's the size. It's uh, small, um, you know, around one centimeter in diameter. You know, and the gray matter and white matter um, are in the millimeter range. Um, therefore, we need to use uh, special techniques that can provide higher resolution for imaging in the cord. Um, as you go to smaller resolution with MRI, um, you're actually you, you're reducing your signal that you're collecting. So you've kind of got a trade-off there. Um, and then the next thing is that the spinal cord is, is a very noisy uh, structure. Um, you have the, the CSF pulsations, uh, which can influence uh, the signal intensity. Uh, the spinal cord itself moves during the cardiac cycle, during the respiratory cycle. Um, then you also have noise, uh, let's say, in, in the cervical spine, for example, which is mainly where we're imaging. Uh, for my research, you have you know, the, vas uh, the neck vasculature. Uh, there's motion from swallowing. Uh, it's overall just a pretty terrible region for MRI uh, with all of these sources of noise um, that can reduce the, the signal quality and, and cause artifacts in the images. And then the last major hurdle is that we haven't had the tools available to analyze the spinal cord images. Uh, most neuroimaging analysis packages uh, that exist have been designed for the brain. Um, so kind of just to get around these, these, these challenges, we try to use um, some special imaging sec sequences that allow us to image faster and at higher resolution. And recently, uh, tools that are specific for spinal cord imaging um, have become available. And just in the last couple of years, the uh, techniques have advanced quite a bit. Um, and I, I expect that in the next decade, there's going to be a major increase just in the uh, spinal cord imaging field uh, overall. And so using combination of these different uh, imaging and analysis uh, approaches, you know, we can now capture uh, gray matter volumes in the cord, whether that's the dorsal horn or ventral horn. Uh, we can measure uh, diffusion metrics along specific white matter tracks. So you could look at uh, corticospinal tract in the cord if you wanted. Um, and then we can also um, obtain measures of neural activity in the spinal cord uh, with functional MRI. Um, there's definitely still plenty of room in these methods, and um, we're, but we're kind of at the stage now where we have the tools and the field is wide open for study. Um, so it's, it's quite amazing. Uh, I get excited about it just to see this, the progress that's been made um, already in the field over just my, my short research career. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, everything is just so fascinating. I, you know, I, I wouldn't normally think about capturing the signal and having to worry about, you know, respiratory uh, motion artifacts that occurs on a cervical spine, for instance. So that that's kind of a wake up call. And I'm, I'm sure, as you said, it's it's somewhat difficult or challenging to to deal with some of these artifacts. But the precision of the images and being able to get to a single track, that sounds uh, just mind-blowing. Um, hmm. I look forward to lots of studies coming out that, you know, maybe we can use this clinically. Uh, well, hopefully we can. I, I guess that's the idea of all of this research and trying to translate it. So uh, I'm sure it will be coming uh, and hopefully soon. Uh, so what what type of conditions or case presentations would these scans be 
useful for in practice. And have you ever heard of a chiropractor ordering these types of MRIs? Yes, again, you know, the field is pretty new. Um, there is some evidence um, that these measures are sensitive to injury and pathology. Um, to date, um, spinal cord um, MRI changes have, specifically functional MRI changes, have been seen in fibromyalgia patients, uh, cervical spondylotic myelopathy, multiple sclerosis, spinal cord injury. Uh, we've seen structural changes um, in uh, ALS, uh, spinal cord injury. Right now, I'm currently working on a longitudinal study um, using uh, these uh, spinal cord techniques as well as brain imaging to identify markers of pain and sensory motor function in cervical radiculopathy patients. Um, you know, right now, it's, it's kind of similar to the brain um, where we're at. And I think these, these techniques will likely first show clinical utility uh, in the pre-surgical area in that um, I collaborate with uh, Dr. Zachary Smith, he's a neurosurgeon, uh, previously at Northwestern, but now at the University of Oklahoma. And he treats many patients with uh, cervical spondylotic myelopathy. And you know, it's a, it's a multi-level degenerative condition affecting the spinal cord and can lead to sensory motor issues in the upper and lower extremities uh, due to chronic compression of the cord. Um, one of the challenges with this disease is that it, it typically presents in older patients who may also have comorbidities. And if you're going to consider surgery on these individuals, um, you only want to do it kind of on those patients that you know that are going to improve. Um, so I think the probably the most the first area where these could be techniques may could be able to use is to kind of um, predict who may recover. So perhaps these measures could provide a measure of a nervous system health uh, or the capacity of the nerves, nervous system to recover following surgery. Um, if so, you know, you could prevent patients that are likely to have poor outcomes um, from undergoing surgery in the first place. Yeah, well, that would be fantastic for sure. Well, thanks for going through that, Ken. I, I do want to talk about a couple of your papers on uh, spinal cord. And first, if you could tell me about a 2016 paper, and this was called Lateralization of Cervical Spinal Cord Activity during an isometric upper extremity motor task with functional magnetic resonance imaging. Yeah. Um, um, so this was uh, the first author, uh, my first uh, first author paper for my PhD. So it's really, it's one of my favorites. Uh, the study uh, focused on using functional MRI, um, which again is technically challenging, uh, to localize activity in the spinal cord um, and assess the reliability of the location of that activity. So. Um, Around when I started my PhD, there had been probably about 100 papers published in spinal cord fMRI. Um, but in my opinion, you know, the signals from those papers, you know, did not appear to be necessarily very localized. And the reliability of spinal cord fMRI kind of had never been reported. Um, so for this study, what we did, we used some new fMRI sequences and analysis techniques uh, that hadn't been used. And we had participants perform a, a simple left and right-sided isometric wrist flexion task. And we did this over several runs. So I think we collected about um, 30 minutes, I think, of, of data per, per subject. So we had a lot of data also. Um, and the results showed that activity was localized to the corresponding uh, left or right hemicord. Um, so um, if you move your right hand, we saw activity in, in the right spinal cord. If you moved your left hand, uh, we saw activity in the left spinal cord. And, you know, this is expected based on the, the corticospinal tract and where your, where your motor neurons are located um, 
in the spinal cord. And we weren't just able to see this laterality across um, across all the subjects, but we were actually able to start to see it at the individual level. So let's say if I ran scans you, we'd be able to, and you moved your right hand, we'd be able to see that right-sided activity. Um, and if you moved your left hand, we'd be able to see the left, left-sided activity just in an individual, which is um, quite remarkable just given the, the amount of noise and, and difficulty with, with some of these techniques. Um, and then we also looked at reliability and across uh, shorter chunks of time, so five to six minutes, we were also able to, to see that lateral, uh, laterality uh, at, shorter, at shorter durations of imaging. Um, this kind of just seems pretty simple, um, but in you know, comparison, uh, laterality of brain activity uh, during a similar motor task was reported in the early 90s. So, you know, now it's been, you know, more than, you know, that's more than 20 years ago. So uh, we're, we're now just finally getting uh, to a similar level of detail in the spinal cord. Um, and since then, uh, we've also investigated activity with thermal stimulation. Uh, we've looked at recently uh, tactile stimulation at uh, different dermatomes. Um, this study was just recently published uh, in NeuroImage this May. Hmm. Cool. Um, so, you know, my, the... Again, the chiropractor in me is thinking, okay, we, you know, adjust at a certain level and what could we see on these images? That, that would be cool. Um, hmm. So uh, another paper, uh, that caught my attention was lateral corticospinal tract damage correlates with motor output in incomplete spinal cord injury. And this was published in Archives of Physical Medicine and Rehab. Perhaps you could. Tell us about that one. Yeah, this work was done with, uh, in collaboration with Dr. Uh, Andrew Smith. Uh, Andrew is a physical therapist and neuroscientist at uh, the University of Colorado, Denver. Uh, Andrew's research and clinical interests are in incomplete spinal cord injury and rehabilitation. Um, one issue in spinal cord injury is the, the lack of tools kind of to predict who may recover uh, sensory motor function after an injury um, or, you know, which treatment might be best for which specific tr uh, patient. Um, so in this study, we used high-resolution uh, submillimeter structural 3D uh, T2-weighted imaging uh, to investigate the relationship between uh, the lesion area and specific white matter tracks. Uh, so we're able to have high enough resolution that we're able to identify the lesion. It's, you know, full 3D extent, and then see kind of where it's located uh, with respect to other other tracks. And so we found that the amount of cortical spinal uh, tract damage uh, was correlated uh, with lower extremity motor function um, in an ipsilateral manner. So if you had um, more damage to your right cortical spinal tract, you're likely to have more uh deficits in your right lower extremity and vice versa for the, for the left side. Um, and uh, again, you know, this seems pretty obvious that kind of maybe should happen based off of our understanding of neuroanatomy, um, but we haven't had the tools um, to kind of do this sophisticated analysis before uh, in humans. Um, so there's there's just a lot of low hanging fruit uh, that's that's there, you know, to explore, you know, now that we have these tools. Yeah, and like you said, I mean, if if we haven't had these tools to visualize it, I mean, there's different, you know, tools like EEG and things that have been around for some period of time, but actually being able to see it, I mean, how cool is that, <laughs> right? <Yeah. laughs> That's awesome. So another topic I want to discuss is machine learning and uh, 
wow, what a what a buzzword these days. Uh, and it sounds like you're using machine learning to identify patterns in MRI and and are we able to predict pain and and what sensory motor function is like with this? Yeah. Um, yeah. So I think yeah, machine learning is definitely it's a hot topic uh, and a buzzword. Uh, it's not necessarily new. You know, it's been used for years in many of our uh, computer and phone applications. Um, machine learning algorithms are what you know drive your Amazon purchase recommendation. It's uh, your uh, Facebook newsfeed, your suggested movies on Netflix, etc. Um, in recent years, you know, there's been uh, there've been some dramatic improvements in the fields of, of visual and speech speech recognition, um, which has received quite a quite a lot of attention. Um, so, I, you know, you know, how does machine learning you know differ from standard statistics? I feel that machine learning is often uh, discussed in sort of a black box, overly technical manner. You know, hopefully, I try I mean, I'll try here just to demystify it some. Um, so you have machine learning um, and then classical statistics, and between them, there's quite a lot of overlap, and they're actually quite similar. Uh, with you know classical statistics, we want we're using it to identify patterns in data, uh, with a main focus, I think, on inferring relationships between variables, and then you know making a determination on how likely these relationships occur relative to chance. You know, and if that effect is uh, or relationship is large enough, then we we believe it believe it's true. Um, machine learning is similar in that you use similar statistical models. You can use linear regression, for example, um, to identify patterns in the data. Um, but you kind of take it one step further in that you use that model uh, to ba- make a prediction about an unseen uh, independent data set uh, to, one, further uh, validate that model. But then you can also see how well that model performs on uh, data it hasn't, hasn't seen. And if it's sufficiently accurate, uh, you can then use that model uh, for the intended application. So the focus in machine learning uh, versus classical statistics is um, is more is to be more on the use of the model to predict uh, rather than the inference of the of the features driving the prediction. So why those features maybe necessarily are driving the prediction. Um, for example, Amazon may not care exactly why their model suggests a product for you um, as long as you purchase it, right? Um, therefore, you know, kind of with machine learning, you may be okay including um, more variables in these models, you know, maybe tens or to thousands of variables, because um, you're not so much concerned about interpreting the model, but more just about the accuracy of the prediction. Um, so there's tends to be a uh, less of an emphasis on inference, maybe, and more of a on using the model to make predictions. Um, that's sort of what I think makes machine learning, I guess, different than classical statistics. Um, one caveat, though, is in in my uh, research in neuroimaging, you know, we all, we not only want to use machine learning to identify uh, predictive patterns, but we also want to know what brain regions are driving that prediction. So. For example, if a specific set of brain regions uh, predicted a response to treatment, uh, we uh, may want to uh, or may think that those those brain regions um, um, are somehow have a role in that condition, whether that's back pain um, and or are somehow involved in in the treatment mechanisms. Let's say. So in that way, um, we are not just concerned about making that prediction, but we also have um, ways that we can see what's actually driving that prediction and interpret these models, which sometimes can be uh, quite large. 
Okay. Yeah, I, I think I get the distinction now. That thanks for going through that. So you you've used some of these techniques uh, in your recent publication and scientific reports, and this is I found interesting a uh, bit more musculoskeletal um, in, in nature. And this was deep learning convolutional neural networks for the automatic quantification of muscle fat infiltration following whiplash. Uh, so perhaps you could tell us about. Uh, this study um, and how you use machine learning uh, within that study. Yeah, so this paper is uh, from a project by uh, Dr. James Elliott, who is at the University of Sydney, and also Dr. Uh, Andrew Smith again, um, in addition to collaborators at Stanford and Northwestern. Um, a major part of Jim's research is understanding the factors, uh, biological, psychological, and social that uh, predispose one to develop a persisting chronic whiplash-associated disorder um, versus those that uh, recover following a motor vehicle collision. Uh, the severity of a motor collision, uh, from what I understand, is, is actually not that strong of a risk factor for pre pre predicting persisting whiplash symptoms. Um, so in this study, uh, we're using an MRI technique that allows us to create images uh, with contrast between water and fat, and that's called it's called the Dixon technique. And so we can use these images to identify the fat content of, of muscles. And uh, through quite a bit of Jim's work uh, and others, it's been demonstrated over many studies um, that consistently within individuals with chronic musculoskeletal condition, uh, they tend to have uh, higher levels of fat content in the muscles associated with that uh, condition. So uh, for whiplash, for example, um, those that develop chronic whiplash tend to have higher levels of muscle fat in, in the deep cervical extensor muscles, and which tends to be uh, associated with their level of neck-related disability. It, it still remains kind of un unclear and needs to be understood better by, uh, you know, whether that higher fat content develops following the injury or whether higher fat content at the time of injury um, makes you at greater risk for developing chronic uh, whiplash-associated disorder. Um, perhaps the higher fat indicates, you know, poor muscle function and maybe decreased ability to dissipate uh, the flexion extension forces uh, uh, experience during uh, the whiplash injury. Um, so to, I guess, to better understand uh, the relationship between this, um, the muscle fat and pers persisting whiplash symptoms, Jim uh, completed a large study um, that longitudinally tracked uh, 100 individuals with acute neck pain um, following a motor vehicle collision over the course of a year and collected these imaging at four different time points. Um, so a, a major barrier in this research is calculating the fat content of the muscles, and it requires a researcher um, with some expertise to, to, you know, to go in and manually identify uh, or segment muscles in the images. And this can be an extremely long process and take hours per data set. And if you think clinically, you know, no radiologist is ever going to routinely go in and circle muscles uh, you know, to get you uh, fat measurements in, in the neck. Uh, for clinical care, it's 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 way too inefficient. Um, so I had recently heard of these major advancements at Stanford and other universities in, in computer vision technology. Uh, the technology is um, convolutional neural networks, uh, which is a, a fairly new statistical model that works on images 
and was showing human-level performance in tasks such as uh, tumor identification and organ segmentation. And when I was you know, reading through these, I, I immediately thought of Jim's research and thought we should give it a try and maybe save uh, a graduate student hundreds of hours of work. <laughs> that would um, always yeah. be nice. <laughs> yeah, and it's, and it's not fun work. It's, it's really boring. It, 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 you know, you can get through a, a few, uh, catch up on your Netflix, I guess, but it's, it's, <laughs> it's mind, mind-numbing. And, and, you know, and manual, too, because you've got to draw these all out. It's, it's tough work. Oh. Uh, um, so in this study, we, you know, we had three individuals segment a data, data set. We trained uh, this model on a portion of data set, and then we tested it on uh, a held-out portion. And to our surprise, it, the, the model performed uh, very well. So, you know, now instead of spending an hour or more segmenting the muscles from a data set, uh, the model could accurately, you know, segment the muscles in seconds. So, you know, we've expanded, uh, now expanded this project to a 14 muscle model. And it, identifying 14 muscles in 400 data sets, if we think about Jim's amount of data he has available, is, is like beyond most labs' capabilities. And to, you know, to do that research, we need a way to automate it. So. Um, this more complex model, we're kind of we're just starting to look at the findings, um, but they're looking very promising. Um, and hopefully, this automated 14 muscle segmentation project will be out uh, later this year in print. And we we plan to make the, the code and model available um, so anyone can use it. Um, this project is kind of getting at my goal of automating quantitative measurements in MRI. Um, based on our our current findings and how quickly the field is moving. Um, I kind of I feel that within ten years you could start to see the, the automated extraction of these uh, imaging metrics and then their their inclusion in imaging reports. Um, but of course, you know, the impact that this will have on clinical practice and clinical outcomes, you know, still re remains to be determined. Yeah, for sure. And you know, as you're going through that, I I couldn't help but think about my own PhD. And uh, I discovered macros in Excel <laughs> and that they could save me hours upon hours of uh, number crunching. And, you know, I'm not a, uh, I'm not a um, uh, computer programmer type, so I, I rely on people such as yourself <laughs> to figure these kind of things out or, or learn about macros or something like that. So this is, uh, this is fascinating. Yeah, it's, it's one thing I didn't when when looking into uh, starting PhDs, I didn't I didn't think I'd be doing a lot of uh, computer coding, but I, I do it every day, and I really enjoy it. So well, that's cool. And interesting I'd, skill sets. You I, I, absolutely, and I'd love to know how to do that. <laughs> I'm jealous. Maybe I just need to start going to some courses and, and learn how that works. That would be good. So, Ken, let's take this machine learning and, and again, try to get it to our clinical in interventions, perhaps, uh, such as chiropractic adjustments. Is there, is there any use at this point for how that might help? Yeah, that's uh, a great question, Dean. Um, we have three main uses uh, for these MRI techniques. Um, one is that they could provide uh, mechanist mechanistic information. You know, you know that is, you know, how is pain encoded in the brain? How does chronic pain develop? Uh, what are the mechanisms of a specific treatment? They can provide diagnostic information. Uh, what condition or combination of conditions is driving the clinical presentation in this particular patient? Uh, maybe determine, let's say, the most pathological level, you know, in 
multi-level level, uh, cervical spine uh, degenerative disease. And maybe they can provide uh, prognostic and predictive information. Uh, will this patient <clears throat> develop chronic pain? Will this treatment work for this patient? Um, these are kind of the, the ways we're trying to use um, MRI and uh, machine learning um, to, to answer these questions. And if we can start to answer these questions, um, we'll probably under, uncover brain and spinal cord regions um, that, um, well, we can uncover the ones that provide mechanistic and diagnostic and prognostic information. And we'll, these may also be helping us identify new uh, treatment targets. So then we could use these, uh, we'll target these regions with neuromodulation techniques, such as transcranial magnetic stimulation or transcranial uh, direct current stimulation, uh, maybe optimize uh, physical, uh, psychological, procedural, or pharmaceutical uh, interventions uh, to target these specific regions and uh, increase the effectiveness of, of current treatments. Um, so we are we, we're, we're working on it. Hopefully, we'll be there in, in ten years with some uh, you know straightforward examples of applications. Um, but the, you know the field is really trying to you know is, is trying to use really move, take it the next step and be able to trans translate these as clinical tools. Yeah, I got it. And <clears throat> so again, we, we'll have to wait a little bit, but uh, it's just you know uh, just thinking about all the possibilities. I want to do it now, Ken. I don't want to <laughs> wait. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, now, you, you've had a recent publication in Neuroimage Clinical, and this was uh, evidenced for decreased neurologic pain signature activation following thoracic spinal manipulation in healthy volunteers and participants with neck pain. So could you tell us about that clinical study? Yeah, so, um, you know, when starting my PhD uh, and neuroimaging training in, in 2010, I really had the goal to study manual therapy research, um, you know, but that doesn't necessarily, that's not the path that, that ended up happening. It's kind of the way a PhD works, I guess. Um, but this paper, um, you know, means I'm, I'm finally getting back into it. You know, it just took me 10 years. Um, as I mentioned, I feel one of the greatest impacts that advanced brain imaging has had on clinical practice is by understanding of how the, the brain processes pain. Um, and the field that, you know, is really now working um, the neuroimaging field is working to on how to use these imaging tools clinically. Um, this study used a machine learning model called the Neurologic Pain Signature, um, which was developed by Tor Wager, who was at Dartmouth. Uh, the original paper was published in 2013 in the New England Journal of Medicine. It's, it's a great read and a really well-designed uh, series of studies. Uh, the model was trained to predict pain um, from functional MRI data in healthy controls who experienced different intensities of painful thermal stimulation. It was shown to predict pain intensity in another set of participants. It appears not to predict social pain. And the brain model prediction uh, was also shown to decrease um, with opioid administration. Now it's been further validated uh, in several studies. So in theory, you know, in practice, the idea is that you could, you could take an fMRI uh, brain act activation image um, from a painful stimulus, you could apply the model to it, and you get a score uh, that is related to the pain intensity uh, experienced by that, that individual. Um, so Dr. Cheryl Sparks is a PhD-trained uh, physical therapist who is at 
who was at Bradley University and OSF Healthcare in Peoria, Illinois. Uh, she's now at South, uh, South College. Um, Cheryl, um, and you may remember these studies, had previously conducted two fMRI studies um, using fMRI to study mechanisms of thoracic manipulation. Um, one study was a non-controlled pilot study in healthy controls um, published in JOSPET in, in 2013. The other study was a randomized controlled trial in neck pain patients published in GMPT in 2017. And in these studies, uh, painful mechanical stimuli uh, were applied to the cuticle uh, during uh, functional imaging. Uh, thoracic manipulation was performed, and then the imaging was repeated. Hmm. So, what kind of a what kind of adjustment was used? Yeah, it was an upper thoracic manipulation uh, performed supine, um, kind of like an anterior to posterior setup. Uh, the nice thing was that the manipulation was performed on the scanner bed and didn't require moving the participants um, out of the head coil, which receives the MR signal. So, it was quite a, quite a nice setup for just uh, a study design. Um, and I guess I knew about uh, Cheryl's studies, and so I had the idea to take another look at the data set, and I was starting to work on um, machine learning training, and I was curious if we could apply the neurologic pain signature to the brain activation images uh, pre and post manipulation, and uh, see how uh, or if this neurologic pain signature uh, tracked uh, the pain ratings. Um, and I and I feel like this is a really nice example of just an interdisciplinary collaboration um, and kind of just taking another look of a, a pre-existing data set. Uh, but we had three goals for the study. One was just to introduce brain-based models of pain for uh, spinal pain and manual therapy research. Just kind of, you know, let the field know that these, these tools exist and um, maybe we can get some ideas on how to use them. Um, second was to better characterize the central mechanisms of spinal manipulation. Um, does spinal manipulation seem to affect this pain network? And then finally, just to further validate these brain-based models as potential clinical biomarkers of pain. Hmm. So that sounds uh, like an interesting interprofessional collaborative project and you know another nice way to look at the data set. So what did you find in this study? Yeah, so we saw that in both studies, uh, the neurologic pain signature was reduced following spinal manipulation. The the pain signature activation strongly tracked perceived pain in the first, uh, albeit non-controlled study. Um, but the relationship uh, between the neurological pain uh, signature activation and pain measures was, was less clear in the second study of neck pain patients. Um, you know, there, there are several limitations um, to the study, um, and there's definitely certainly um, much room for improvement, but I, I think the findings are, are promising. Um, it does provide some evidence that spinal manipulation may alter uh, pain-related activity uh, within brain regions uh, specific to the processing of physical pain. It also uh, introduces and, and further validates the use of these kind of, of measures um, uh, to study uh, manual therapies, which I think is pretty cool. Yeah, so just cool. And, and I want to ask a, a question about the the particular regions of the brain. Now, before you mentioned that the you know, pain is sort of distributed, uh, if I remember correctly, across the various regions of the brain. Was there a particular region that was associated with this um, thoracic manipulation that you found? Yeah, so it's, it's, it's a little hard to say um, exactly what re regions were responsible, um, but there is an overall um, decreased network activation uh, where 
you know, it's a distributed network. So there's somatosensory areas uh, involved. There is a cingulate cortex, insular areas, medial prefrontal cortex um, that are combined within this. Um, but as a whole, it seems to decrease. Um, there were some individual differences in, in pain regions. Um, was that a lot? Was those findings may have just been just due to a small sample size, and it's not necessarily clear what any of those mean. Um, so I think further larger studies are necessary to kind of really tease apart what areas could be, uh, you know, leading to that uh, reduce in, in, the, in the pain experience. Hmm. Cool. So, Ken, you were recently awarded a new grant from NIH. Uh, what what types of projects are you currently working on and, and what are you thinking in the next, uh, I don't know, few years? Yeah, so I was fortunate yeah, to re- recently awarded a, a five-year career development award um, from the National Institute of Neurological Disorders and Stroke. Um, because it's a career development award, uh, the award has a training component and a research component. Uh, the training component uh, has focused on machine learning and advanced brain imaging and uh, really learning a lot of the techniques that I described. And then uh, for the research, we're currently enrolling patients with cervical radiculopathy and performing advanced uh, structural diffusion and functional brain and spinal cord MRI um, in, in these individuals. And the, the patients we're going to track over a course of the year, and then we're going to repeat the imaging. Uh, we're also collecting imaging in age and sex match controls as well. So the goal is to use machine learning models to develop biomarkers of pain severity and sensory motor function and see how these measures, uh, you know, track these measures uh, over the course of, of cervical radiculopathy. Um, it should be uh, pretty exciting. It'll be interesting to see how uh, the, the measures change in those who uh, improve or those who uh, their symptoms worsen. Um, I'm going to, you know, use these findings really to support a large uh, independent research grant uh, c- to continue this line of research. Um, at some point in the near future, I hope to see uh, you be using these measures to better understand uh, manual therapies um, and exercise for treating uh, cervical radiculopathy. Yeah, I look forward to that, and I'm sure the rest of the profession does as well. That, that'll be fantastic. So, Ken, uh, I asked this question um, of everyone who comes on the podcast. And one of the, one of the motivations that I had to, to make these, uh, podcasts public is to help to motivate and assist practitioners and students to pursue research careers in chiropractic science. We've just talked about all of the cool stuff that you've been doing and, you know, the interesting twists and turns that, that life takes as we go through a career in chiropractic research or research in general. So I'm wondering if you could offer any advice to us, these aspiring chiropractors or students who may wish to become scientists. Yeah, this is great. Great, Dean. And it's something I'm really passionate about. I think the most important aspect is, is finding mentors who can help uh, guide you on your career path. And I would, you know, reach out early, you know, and start building your network, even if you're just maybe partly interested in in a research career uh, or research in general. You know, I found that every chiropractic researcher I've reached out to um, has been uh, very open uh, and happy to offer help and advice. Um, Any of your readers, uh, please reach out to me. Uh, Send me an email and we will find a time to chat. And I'll give you my honest advice and let you know my experiences 
I truly enjoy uh, mentoring future scientists and, and want, you know, as many chiropractors as possible to, um, you know, be involved in research and, and really grow the, the research base. Next, uh, I think, is you need to start getting uh, research experience, especially if you are interested in, in um, pursuing a PhD, because um, you need to be, um, you would like to, you want to get into a competitive program and you need the experience uh, to be competitive uh for the application. So I would start, um, you know, working on a project no matter how small it is. Um, for example, I started with an educational survey of chiropractic students. Um, but the best way to learn is, you know, is hands-on. So again, get started. Uh, there's also, there's been a major push, at least in the field of neuroimaging, um, for data sharing and open science, uh, which I think will become the norms for all fields. Um, you, uh, you know, could start working on neuroimaging on a neuroimaging research project if you wanted to. You know, there's an abundance of, of imaging data sets online for free, ranging from 20 to 30 participants to hundreds to thousands. Um, most of the the software and image analysis tools that we use are open source, so they're free. And there's lots of tutorials online to learn these te techniques. And you know, you don't need actually need fancy hardware or a supercomputer. Um, your PC or Mac is enough to get you started. Um, just uh, there's openneuro.org and openpain.org. I think these would be just good places to start to get your hands on on some data. Um, so that was yeah, get get working on a project. Uh, at least you know start working on your skill set a little bit and get um, get involved in research um, any way possible. Um, next, you know I think it's important to just have an understanding of how research is funded and how it works. You know what projects are fundable, what training opportunities are available um, for chiropractors. Um, your you know your research mentors can definitely help you with this. For the U.S., which I'm most familiar with, uh, the National Institutes of Health is the main uh, health research funding body. There are several training opportunities available um, for chiropractors, which could cover tuition, salary, uh, healthcare, research expenses uh, for a PhD. Um, the examples here are the F31 and F32 fellowships, and also um, as a chiropractor, you're you're um, considered, uh, you know, a doctorally trained individual, and your your DC uh, makes even qualify for the, the career development grant that I'm being supported on right now. Uh, another thing, and uh, student debt is also a major barrier um, for many for receiving research training. Um, a lot of the times, the the research you don't necessarily go into it for the salary. You do it more because you're uh, passionate about it. Um, but uh, the NIH knows that, and they want more clinicians to be active, become active uh, researchers. So the NIH has a student loan repayment program. Uh, which will help pay off student debt uh, for researchers and, and chiro chiropractors qualify for this. Um, so right now, uh, the award is, is quite substantial. They've just increased it to $50,000 a year of student debt. If you can, can commit 20 hours a week uh, to research, um, there are some qualifications or that you need uh, criteria to, 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 meet, uh, to meet this uh, the requirements of the award. I'm here to help help you with that if you if you want. Um, I'm currently receiving loan repayment benefits and have recently applied for an additional two years of the loan repayment uh, award. 
Uh, all of the NIH funding is competitive, so you kind of have to have a strong application. Um, but I'm an ambassador for the program, so I can I can help anyone with any questions regarding that application process. So, um, you know, I guess the main things are are, are be come uh, find your mentors, uh, get as much research experience, at least get started to show that you're you have some research experience, uh, and then kind of just have an understanding of of how research works, um, how the funding works, and, and you know, take advantage of possibly some nice uh, opportunities that, that exist um, to help chiropractors get training. So uh, please reach out to me. I'm, I'm happy to assist uh, in any way I can. Well, Ken, thank you so much for going through that, especially, uh, you know, the part about finances. I, I do get quite a few questions about this from chiropractors and students that are interested in getting into the research career. Uh, and so I think that's a, a huge thing. So I'm, I'm really glad you've addressed that. I, I don't recall any other guest uh, actually talking about that. So thank you so much for going through that. And, and I know you have uh, a lot of knowledge uh, about uh, these uh, repayment programs. So uh, that's totally totally amazing and uh again thank thanks so much and and thanks for coming on the podcast i've wanted you on for such a long time and i remember us talking back at acc rack i think it was in 2017 or something like that uh, <laughs> we were talking about getting you on and and we finally did even with uh covid yeah yeah covid delayed us a few months but uh made it in so yeah no day great opportunity dean i, I really appreciate it Ken, thanks so much again for coming on and, and really appreciate it. It was a fascinating discussion, and uh, I hope to have you back on sometime. You can tell us about all these uh, other cool studies you've been involved in. Yeah, that sounds great. Love to discuss uh, maybe two, two years from now. We can discuss, hopefully we have some interesting results from our current project uh, in cervical radiculopathy patients. Awesome. Thanks, Ken. Great. Thank you. Thanks again for listening to this episode with Dr. Ken Weber. I'm looking forward to more interviews, and I hope you are too. Take care. Bye for now.